Hello, Kata, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Mikoroi Hawkins. Coming up first. It's really, really timely for Pacific groups. Uh, we've been lobbying and pushing for a global ban since 2012. Pacific Ocean campaigners welcome France's call for a ban on deep sea mining. Also, in terms of Australia and China, this really is terrible optics. The Solomon Islands opposition group says international aid donors should focus on development, not guns. And later on, the use of personal attacks and social media innuendo, which has really risen in the course of this campaign. Bipartisan tensions in the United States are being mirrored in its unincorporated Pacific territories. But before we get into all that, a brief news update. Hospitals and health clinics in Tuvalu are operating under COVID-19 emergency protocols amid a worsening community outbreak of the virus. As Lydia Lewis reports, the Tuvalu Department of Health has recorded 140 cases of COVID-19 in the community so far. That figure is expected to rise, with the Department of Health spokesperson saying in some cases whole families are testing positive. Last Wednesday, routine testing found two probable community cases. Then on Thursday, they were confirmed and a COVID-19 community outbreak was declared by the government. Up until then, Tuvalu was one of the few countries in the world that had still not experienced community transmission of the coronavirus. According to local health authorities, infected persons are thought to have contracted the Omicron strain of the virus, but testing has yet to be done to confirm that. Those infected in Tuvalu are displaying mild to moderate COVID symptoms, such as fever, coughing and shortness of breath. So far, no COVID-19-related deaths have been reported. The Pacific Blue Line Collective welcomes the call by France for a ban on deep-sea mining, a call that Pacific civil society groups and movements have been pushing for since 2012. French President Emmanuel Macron announced at COP27 that he supports a ban on deep-sea mining in international waters. Pacific Network on Globalization is part of the Pacific Blue Line, a regional collective of Pacific NGOs, churches, movements, campaigning against deep-sea mining. I caught up with its deputy coordinator, Joey Tao, who's at the International Seabed Authority meeting in Jamaica. I began by asking him how significant this call by France was. Um, from Jamaica, Koroi, um, this recent call by France for a ban on deep sea mining comes at a really important time when uh, we have the International Seabed Authority and state parties currently negotiating uh, draft regulations for exploitation. And when I say draft regulations, these are regulations they want to ensure uh, that are in place uh, before any wax of deep sea mining takes place. Um, The French President uh, Macron, who announced Uh, Today, uh, during COP27, that France uh, stands on the issue is a ban, ban on deep sea mining in international waters. And it's it's really, really timely for Pacific groups, especially for some of us in the region, uh, like the Pacific Network on Globalization, the Pacific Conference of Churches, uh, the Pacific Association of Non-Governmental Organization, um, and others who form this Pacific Blue Line. Uh, We've been lobbying and pushing for a global ban since 2012. 
when uh, the issue was first introduced at the Pacific Leaders uh, Forum in Cook Islands. And we've continued to call for a ban um, on the basis that there is not enough science, uh, Pacific people or the, the community, international community at large needs to be consulted um, before such an, uh, a new form of mining takes place. Uh, we've called for the ban given that our oceans are at a critical, that the health of our oceans is at a critical stage where it's, it's declining due to human stresses. Our ocean plays a vital role in terms of regulating climate. So those are some of the positions that have informed Pacific groups uh, and as to why we've taken a, a call for a ban. Uh, we welcome the call by France, President Macron. It is a timely uh, position that calls for a ban and we hope uh, the International Seabed Authority and partners uh, uh, could follow suit and um, support a global ban. Uh, this, not to say, um, also to acknowledge the the ongoing stance by some of the other um, other state parties, uh, such as Germany, who recently called for a precautionary pause. Uh, you have Costa Rica, who's been advocating for a, um, um, a precautionary pause. Um, you have New Zealand who recently announced a, um, a conditional moratorium on deep sea mining in international waters. Uh, but this has come at the back of Pacific Island uh, states that who have announced respective positions on a moratorium or a ban within the EEZ. Great to see there's strong support from other Pacific nations in the region, but Nauru and the Cook Islands still seem to support deep sea mining. Um, yes, Koroi, I understand um, as other Pacific Island states, as I've mentioned earlier, rather Fiji, Samoa, um, Palau, Federated States of Micronesia, who had uh, launched a, an alliance of countries who support a global moratorium on the issue. Uh, we also acknowledge and understand that countries like Nauru and Cook Islands, who have been very active in this industry, um, Nauru had triggered a two-year rule process last year uh, that had got uh, island states trying to have legislations in place. Uh, we appeal to some of our countries, you know, there uh, again, our, our stance on why we should not even go there to mine the ocean is based on uh, the current climate context that we are living in. And we appeal to countries like Nauru uh, and Cook Islands, uh, Tonga, uh, to relook their position. Um, we need to halt the process. We need to stop this madness of rushing to mine. Uh, we need to have proper legislations in place. Uh, but you already have countries that are calling for a pause, a moratorium, and a uh, with France's recent announcement for a ban. What do Pacific NGOs, civil societies, and churches want to see following this conference? I think, uh, thank you, Koroi. I think what we really want to see um, here at the ISA, but not here only at the ISA, um, if, if France made that statement that at COP, it's, it's the realization that um, the ocean is a, is, a, is, a, is a key component to regulating climate. Um, and we, we, we need to address this in, in other platforms. Um, but I think for the ISA, there is a need for serious consideration if it's member states like France uh, like Fiji and the uh, alliance of uh, countries supporting a moratorium, uh, what Germany and New Zealand have recently called for, I think we need to really halt this process. And there is still a lot we need to know about the deep sea um, and how it will impact 
not only the you know the marine ecosystems but people who who depend heavily on it. The leader of the parliamentary opposition group in Solomon Islands is criticising the increased focus on security assistance being provided to the country by Australia and China. Earlier this month, the Australian government donated 60 MK-18 rifles and a fleet of vehicles to the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force. Just a few days later, China made its own police donation, two armoured trucks with mounted water cannons and a fleet of other police vehicles and motorbikes. Matthew Wale says in a country where the main national referral hospital is often lacking even the most basic medicine, it does not make sense to allocate so much overseas aid to security. You know, I I was at a funeral of a relative uh, last week who died because of lack of Panadol solution to bring his temperature down. Um, so this is the situation at the national referral hospital. Basic medicine are lacking, uh, and yet uh, we're investing in guns and water cannon trucks and, and the likes. Uh, so, you know, the sense of uh, perspective on these issues is, I think, my initial sort of observation. Secondly, um, you know, social order and cohesion have always been uh, challenges here in the Solomons, and successive governments, and especially, I think, this prime minister, have really done a little about addressing the root causes um, of conflict and tensions and so forth. And I think one has to say that some serious investments in addressing these issues uh, would go a long way towards uh, mitigating what is uh, you know, perceived as internal threat. Um, so I am quite concerned that it it appears the government is very, very intent on arming itself against its own citizen. That's the way it looks. Um, and uh, in terms of Australia and China, this really is terrible optics that they're competing or trying to outcompete each other um, in arming uh, the Royal Solomon Islands police. The, we, ha- we have a history is the thing that sort of stands out for me, don't we, when it comes to the police force, these kind of weapons, and what happens when things fall apart? Uh, that certainly, I think, is a fear um, that's in the public mind. You know, there is the history of the raid on the Robe Armory that was part of the tensions, and it was part of the coup back in 2000. Of course, we hope that that does not happen again. Uh, we hope that there is robust spine in the police um, to ensure that that will not happen. Um, how, however, I think there is a, a clear fear in the public mind. And this, I think, is a matter the government and the police could have better handled. That fear could have been mitigated by a, a more proactive engagement with the community to make it clear that uh, the government had decided this is what they were going to do. The, the other issue with the Australian armament, um, you know, semi-automatic weapons, is that the, what, what the justification is for the number of guns, semi-automatic guns, um, and the level of lethality of those guns. Um, 
you know, the question has been asked whether, you know, these are weapons to be used on and against Solomon Islanders, or, or was there some other security calculation? What, what are these weapons for? Questions about the maintenance, the upkeep, and the even the fueling and running of these assets, um, uh, have those been answered in recent um, days since the handover? No, I mean, I the budget is just about to be um, submitted to Parliament, so when the Ministry of Police comes up, to answer for their budget allocations, uh, we will be able to see uh, whether there is uh, adequate provision to maintain and fuel uh, the new vehicles. In terms of police mobility, it always has been an issue. Uh, police haven't been as mobile as they ought to be. You know, you call up a police station and either the vehicle is down or has got no fuel and, and so forth. So. Now, with increased uh, number of vehicles, that should go some way towards making the police more mobile and more responsive to incidents. Uh, and of course, uh, you would expect that uh, there'll be more allocations. Uh, so we we will be watching that in the budget process. Going back to the, the geopolitics and the the interest, I guess, from from a lot of international donor partners. And I, my question is. Is the is the interest and the and the the leverage that the government has, seems to have been able to to achieve being used in, in a way that you approve of in terms of the resources being directed towards Solomon Islands? Uh, well, I, I think the biggest thing for Solomon Islands uh, is jobs. We want to see an economy that is sustainably uh, creating reasonable quality jobs that pay a, a reasonable living wage. Um, you know, it's great that we're sending our young folks to New Zealand uh, and Australia, but uh, we do need to create jobs for them right here in Solomon Island. So, you know, if partners, donor partners could help us and be strategic uh, in investing um, in various sectors that would create those kind, kinds of jobs, that to me, in terms of our own national interest, that would be best. Um, and I would add to that in terms of health and education. Our health sector is uh, nothing to write home about. Seven out of 10 deaths are NCD-related in, in Solomon Islands. Uh, so serious investment in our healthcare system uh, is also required. And, and the third, of course, is education. Now, in terms of education, uh, I think it's a clear win that you know donor partners could uh, could invest in in terms of both uh, educational infrastructure, uh, but also in terms of uh, teacher training and perhaps even you know volunteers. The U.S. have always had, or you know, years ago had Peace Corps who were teaching sciences and mathematics and English and so forth in our schools. You know, those kinds of people to people. Um, engagement uh, are going to be good, not just for our education system, but also in terms of uh, diplomatic leverage, the people-to-people -people aspect of it. A senior Guamanian statesman says bipartisan tensions in the United States are being mirrored in its unincorporated Pacific territories. Gubernatorial elections have been taking place across American Samoa, Guam and the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands this week. 
The local elections run parallel to the U.S. midterms and will determine the governors and lieutenant governors of each of the island groups. The winning candidates not only take power on their islands, they also represent them in the United States House of Representatives. Democrat and Republican-backed candidates are running in all of the Pacific elections. RNZ Pacific reporter Finao Funua spoke with a former Guamanian delegate to the U.S. House of Representatives, Professor Robert Underwood. One thing that we've noticed in America, especially during the last six or four years, is this political polarization, this division. The tensions are very high, not just within the Senate and Congress, but also in the public space. Do you notice this kind of rivalry in Chamorro society? Does this die-hard democratic versus republican mentality exist in Guam? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, we are. We're seeing that, and we're seeing, uh, you know, the, the use of personal attacks and the use of social media innuendo, uh, which has really risen in the course of this campaign. And, uh, and you know, uh, um, of course, most of it comes from the side that is probably uh, more vulnerable. So in this case... Most of it is coming from uh, unnamed sources uh, who support Republican candidates. And uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, kind of uh, not uh, rah-rah advertisements, but more pointed advertisements uh, accusing uh, the other side of various things and also uh, dredging up some old issues. I don't. I'm hoping that uh, this doesn't uh, make any difference, but uh, it's uh, unfortunately that level of divisiveness uh, is uh, hitting Guam. There's even a couple of uh, uh, advocates on the Republican side who are talking about uh, make Guam great again. Uh, that sort of parallels uh, Trump's make America great again. Uh, but we're left wondering here, when what does that person when does that person think Guam was great again when it was under the navy <laughs> i'm just trying to imagine what that point of view is like but it's happening here you were a delegate to the US House of Representatives um what is one uniting thing in Guam that um y- you've pushed um pushed for in the U.S. Um, state of representatives? Well, uh, here here in Guam, some of the case, some of the issues are very Guam-specific, like uh, the return of, uh, of federal land, which I'm very proud that I passed legislation uh, regarding that, and also uh, war claims, which I started that process with the War Claims Commission. Uh, up until this election, People were generally united behind the idea that uh, that there needed to be uh, an, uh, an initial act of tomorrow self-determination in order to begin the political process. That appears to have weakened somewhat with some candidates. So we'll see how uh, that that plays out. But uh, so that has become an important issue in the uh, race for the delegate. So you have one 
candidate, Republican Jim Moylan, who has, uh, is uh, seen as very pro-military buildup and not supportive of tomorrow self-determination, and Democrat Judy Wampat, who is supportive of tomorrow self-determination and seen as, uh, you know, uh, don't, uh, you know, we have to hold the military accountable for how they behave in Guam. So that's, those are two kind of, they're sort of stylistic more than issue-oriented. Could you describe the elections today? Who's actually elected and what capacity do they hold? All right, so up for election today are the governor and lieutenant governor, and they run as a team. And the incumbents are uh, Governor Lulian Guerrero and Lieutenant Governor Josh Tenorio, uh, and they are Democrats. And on the other side are Felix Camacho and Tony Ada, who are running as Republicans. Uh, also running our delegate to Congress, which is a non-voting position, but a very important one. And running in that election is uh, Judy Wampat, the Democrat, and uh, Jim Moylan, uh, the Republican. And uh, so that's the basic, that's the most significant elections. Uh, there is an election for the Guam legislature. Uh, the the uh, electorate in Guam has a unique um, system where they have uh, 15 members of the Guam legislature, and there's 15 candidates on each side. And it's at, totally at-large voting. So it's really hard to predict uh, which party will prevail in that until we get the results of the election. So in a sense, even though there are 15 Republicans and 15 Democrats, they are sort of all running against each other because the top 15 uh, vote-getters are the ones who get elected to the legislature. Uh, there are no, uh, of course, uh, people in the territories can't vote for president. Uh, so, and there is no president election in any of that this year. Are they directly funded by the Republican and Democratic parties in mainland America? Uh, it is rumored, and it's not substantiated, but it's rumored that the local Republican Party here uh, got a significant amount of money uh, from the National Republican Party, and you can more or less tell by their advertisements that uh, they have a little bit more sophistication and are a little bit more biting uh, than uh, normal for Guam. And uh, that usually indicates uh, uh, outside expertise and involvement. But, you know, that's just uh, speculation, but it, it seems uh, uh, a reasonable speculation. Of, of interest, of course, is the uh, in the delegates race is you have two candidates. Uh, uh, one uh, uh, believes in tomorrow self determination, and the other the other one does not. So the Republican does not believe in tomorrow self determination. The Democrat does, and then the other uh, intervening factor as well is uh, the general attitudes uh, towards the military buildup. In general, the uh, Republican candidates across the board, but not each and every single one, uh, are generally in favor of uh, military buildup without any kind of conditions. The Democrats uh, generally talk about environmental protections and things like that. Is Guam a 
generally Republican or Democrat? Usually it, 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 it's, uh, it's competitive, uh, but, uh, so you can't really predict. But right now the Democrats have a, a majority in the legislature, and of course the incumbent governor and lieutenant governor are Democrats. So I have to say that, that it looks pretty good for them. Thank you so much, and um, I hope that the country, the Guam yeah. is Well, I country. hope my candidates win. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Okay. <laughs> I won't ask um, who you voted for. Um, no. Yeah. No, because I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. That's um, why it's a secret ballot. <laughs> Thank you. For Thank you. Thank you. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us ratings so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas, and look at you next time more.